Amen. Thank you, Vanessa. How's it going, Austin Stone? My name is Ross Lester. I'm one of the congregation pastors here at the church. Romans 12 is where we will be today. I never know how these things translate on screen into your homes and living rooms and spaces where you are watching this service online. But I gotta tell you, in here, we just had church. Um, we just met with the Lord. And so I'm just praying and, and asking him that his Holy Spirit would be present with you in a powerful way today as we study the scriptures together. In the sermon today and next week, we thought it would be wise and prudent to break away briefly from our study in Matthew's gospel in order to speak a bit about the essential nature of Christian community, especially as it is experienced in smaller groups of people. The premise is simple. The Christian life is supposed to be a life together with others. We see it right as a pattern throughout scriptures and the history of the church. We are not made, created, designed to grow in Christ-likeness on our own or in isolation. We need to be together. And this felt need that we have within us to walk this journey of pursuing Christ with others has been highlighted in this season of us not being able to gather together in large gatherings on Sunday. I feel it like a pronounced ache in my soul. And so you may be saying as you sit there at home, well, the easiest way to meet that need is to open wide the doors of all the buildings. What are we waiting for? Just do that. I get that. The true and honest complexity, though, of what it will take for us to actually get all together in rooms again for what will feel anything like a normal Sunday worship service is immense. And I'm asking for your grace and empathy in that decision-making as we navigate all of that complexity. I know that it is frustrating to you. It is extremely frustrating to us. There is nobody who wants together as much as your pastors want together, together with you. This feels like an obstacle for us to be sure in pursuit of Christian community. But I've been thinking, what if this obstacle was also an opportunity? What if we leaned into some of the clear things we can and should do in the meanwhile while we wait to be able to gather together in a room again. What if this was an opportunity for the church? And I mean our church and I mean the church. What if it's an opportunity for the church to fix some things that we have been meaning to get around to fixing for so long, but we have been so busy serving Sundays and we have been so satisfied with Sunday's offerings that we never got around to fixing them. I believe that one of the great things that God is revealing to his church in this season is something we have felt for a long time but we haven't known how to fix. And that is the seemingly widespread shallowness of our spiritual formation as a people of faith. How we have built our lives around almost anything other than ongoing attentiveness to God in community with other believers. In fact, how we have built our lives on things that definitely cut against and undermine and erode the possibility of us living that very kind of life of communal attentiveness to God. 
I think God is revealing that we have then, and I feel responsibility for this, that we have then built church systems and structures that fit in with those distracted lives and we have been content to do so. Maybe, and work with me here for a second, I wanna be cautious and measured in my words, but maybe we have conflated the terms community and congregation. Uh, Now wait a sec, I studied ecclesiology at seminary, I know what a big word congregation is. I know how essential it is for the church to congregate. Essential, uh, the congregation is essential in the life of the church. There's no other way to say it. It is a visible manifestation of an otherwise invisible reality. There is nothing like it, nothing. What you're doing today, it doesn't come close. It's the best we can do, but it's not a real congregating of the church. I can't wait to congregate again. But friends, we know from church history and from the scriptures and from our own experience that congregation isn't the only thing that God uses for Christian communal growth. The early church congregated, to be sure, in the temple courts and they met together frequently in small groups in homes. They fellowshiped together for discipleship, for community and for spiritual formation of each other's lives. I have grown most in the seasons of my life where there have been great life-giving church services, I love those, and deep, ongoing, life-generating friendships that help me to stay attentive to God in the in-between, between those Sundays. You see, and I will be cautious here, but there are elements of ongoing Christian growth and discipleship that are not best applied through mass gatherings on a Sunday. Those are wonderful things. They are essential things, but they're not designed to be everything. And I think we have grown content allowing our Sunday gatherings to do work that they were never actually designed to do. And we all know, if we're honest, that it has grown disappointing fruit that we have just become accustomed to. When we are comfortable accepting that discipleship is a one touch point on a Sunday and not even every Sunday because that's just for the crazies who goes to church every Sunday. We go probably every other Sunday except in summer, then one out of four, otherwise you're a religious zealot and you don't have a boat. Um, But uh, we, we don't go every week, but we expect those things to form us spiritually, those few touch points, 90 minutes together, well not even 90 minutes because we rush in late, we rush out early, we don't stay for the worship at the end, definitely not for the offering or for the announcements on how to get more connected. We rush out and then we go like, I don't feel like I'm being formed spiritually by my community. You're not because that part of the community cannot do the kind of formation that you actually require. But we have settled for the trade because it has become convenient for everyone. It makes the works of ministers easier when we can just focus on having fantastic Sundays. And it makes the life of faith seem easier when that's all we have to contribute and and be part of. But neither of those things prove true because they don't build us up and so our lives don't grow the fruit that we long to grow. And so what if God in this moment is asking us, how will we find ways to live the Christian life together even when we cannot gather en masse in the way that we would like to? The answer, of course, is in groups together with other believers 
but I know you have objections to those groups. I do too. Um, when I was just attending a church and not a pastor in a church, the, the call to groups was always the most uncomfortable one for me. Yeah? You could call me to serve, you could call me to give, you could call me to read the scriptures, those are all great. The call to go sit in a room full of strangers and share the intricacies of my life, that was always one that I felt like, oh, don't make that ask, don't make that ask, because that's a tough one. And, and I too have gone in seasons where I haven't had any of these groups in my life, and so I know all of the excuses. Perhaps you feel like you are too busy, and some of you really, really were, but surely this is the season to re-examine how busy you are. Uh, if not now, then when? Uh, some of you go like, I've been in groups and they weren't great. I, I, I feel you, I get it, I've been in some doozies. I've been in some weird ones with some peculiar people. But we have to stop viewing this as an optional extra for the believer or as something that just exists to meet our personal needs. This is actually part of what it means to sojourn towards the fulfillment of the kingdom, is to walk with other people in community. Uh, I was so challenged by the little book um, called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you wanna ruin your summer, uh, read that little book on repeat at the side of the lake. He posits that people like the idea or the fantasy of community and not actual community. He said, the person who loves their dream of community will inevitably destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will inevitably create community. And so friends, we'll never get a perfect group for you, but we would desire for you to have some friends around you as imperfect as they are, so that together you can pay attention to what God is doing in your life and in the world. Some of you will go, hey, at the stone, it's very difficult to get in a group. I hear that. And we are working on fixing that. Stay tuned to some practical ways at the end of the sermon. And so some objections aside, and I'm sure you have more and we welcome those conversations, all I want to do today is to whet your appetite for meaningful group life. I'm like an appetizer today. A, a good appetizer doesn't fill you up, it just gets you ready for the main meal, which will come next week. But I'm just gonna lay the table and just get you going. I'm gonna urge you to do all that you can to get in a group in this season. And some of those groups may be able to meet in person with social distancing requirements being met. Some of those groups will still have to meet online, uh, dependent on comfort levels, but I'm urging you to get into one before your life gets too complex again. And so I'm a simple guy um, with simple ideas, and so I'm just gonna simply walk you through one text that has shaped my view of community life. When I wanna go insular, when I wanna go isolated, which are major temptations for me and for my family, we like the saying where we say us four and no more. That's when we feel like we just need me time together. I like, I like other people, they just happen to share my last name. Um, and when I'm tempted to get into those modes, I go back to this text. And this text is in Romans 12, where, where, where Paul has just waxed lyrical in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the sovereign grace of God, some of his most complex theology, and then he gets into application, and his application is phenomenal, it's communal, look at this, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, plural, together, in view of the mercies of God, because of these incredible things that we've thought about that God sovereignly rules over the salvation of his saints and gives them grace that they could never earn. What a remarkable thing. In view of that, 
in view of how much we owe him, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What is true worship? Well, it's a devoted life. It's sold out to Christ where you say, I am yours. You call all of the shots. I hold nothing back. In verse two, he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed, be, be changed by the renewing of your mind. New thought patterns will change you into someone who can follow Christ so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I love this text. This is an amazing call from Paul the Apostle. He says, true worship of God is the sold out life of devotion to him, holy and pleasing, sticking out from the influence of the surrounding culture because we have experienced the transformation that is meant to coincide with a life that is devoted to Christ. Paul says, this requires that you renew your mind. What is amazing is what comes next because he thunders into a chapter of what this new life looks like and it is interesting because it is all collective. All of the instructions are plural. It is literally only fully possible to obey Romans 12 within the community of other people. And so friends, Paul tells us to be transformed, but so much of how that transformation manifests is in a life together. Look at what he says, verse three. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you, there's no exceptions to this. There's gonna be, <laughs> gonna be some such hard-hitting things in Romans 12, and I won't need to explain any of them because they're very easy to understand. They're just difficult to live out and to obey. But look at what he says. I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one by the grace of given to me. Paul starts off by reminding us this truth, that together in community with other believers, we can grow in an essential attribute in the Christian life, and that is other-centered humility. You grow in humility by walking out this life with other people. Friends, here's the deal, and here's what's tragic in so much of our Christian experience and narrative and culture. The gospel ought to create the most humble of all people. It's built into the message. <laughs> to believe the message, you must believe that you need salvation, that you are a sinner who needs to be saved and that you cannot do it yourself. You need Christ to do it for you. That is a posture of humility. We just forget that when we go on to what the Christian life looks like. The fact that we haven't earned anything in terms of salvation, but are deeply loved by God um, because of the work of the, the, the Son ought to make us humble and means that we have no need to seem more important or significant than we are. And yet how much striving and clambering do we continue to do? We aren't exactly known for humility, are we? But genuine community gives us an opportunity to practice it. <laughs> and to grow in it. Humility flourishes and grows in community because you're gonna come up against other people who are gonna test it. They're gonna test its resolve. Paul says, hey, don't think of yourself too highly. Think of yourself sensibly. Uh, the other translations uh, translate that as sober 
minded. In other words, don't be drunk on the idea of self. Paul says, having too high a view of yourself, being too self-focused is the same as drunkenness. It distorts your thinking. It's a helpful image. This is what drunk people do. What do drunk people do? Whatever they want for themselves because all the filters are removed and so they do whatever they want for themselves. Paul says, lack of humility is like drunkenness. The counter to that is the sobriety of humility where you consider grace, you look around at the grace bestowed on other people and you are sober-minded in your assessment of yourself. Community is a means of grace that God gives us to sober us up from our drunken self-obsession journeying together with other image bearers or to lift our heads and to help us to see God's radical and gracious distribution of grace to us and to others. It's a great leveler. Grace-fueled humility, as Keller reminded us, doesn't make us think less of ourselves. It's not self-hatred. It does, however, make us think of ourselves less. And that is such a liberating humility Friends, some of you think very little of yourself. You loathe yourself, but you think about yourself a lot. It's not a gospel-driven humility because you think of yourself too much, even if it is in low regard. This too destroys community. Why? It turns other people into tools and pawns from which we establish our self-worth. Isn't that wicked? We turn the gift of community into an exchange from which we gain currency that that will make us feel better about ourselves. Instead of in humility, releasing ourselves and other people to be image bearers who we can love from a position of freedom. When I sober-mindedly consider grace, I come to a few conclusions. I am a nobody who is wrecked in this life without Christ. I would destroy my life without his grace and without his mercy. I don't know where I'd be. And (laughs) I am a beloved child of God. (laughs) And that belovedness is based on nothing that I could ever do. What freedom. That means I'm free to lift my head and see this great grace at work in the people around me. They're not competition. They're brothers and sisters. (laughs) They are not pawns from whom I can gain the currency of approval. They are brothers and sisters saved by grace in whom I can be humble and free. We learn that in community. Verse four. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Whoa, what a view of church Paul has. You're not just a member of a collective, you're members of each other. You're united together like a, like a physical body. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith, unless you're in a Baptist church, then forget about it. If service, use it in service. If, that's a joke. If teaching, use it in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. No one circles that one in their Bible, but there it is, a gift. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Here, here's Paul's observation. Together, together in community, It's the only way really we get to practice plurality and diversity of gifts 
and service. So much of Paul's writing to churches is trying to persuade them that unity and diversity is better than homogeny by far. We've just ignored him for approximately 2,000 years. Think about it. So much of his writing, go through his epistles, is about different people thrust together in a community through shared belief in Christ. They have no business being together other than they believe in the resurrection and Paul's writing to persuade them to get along. Uh, this is the bulk of his writings. He's writing to Jew and Greek who are different ethnicities, different cultures, different worldviews. He's writing to bond servants and business owner. Remarkable that they could be united around one table and yet he's persuaded that they can. And here he says, oh, and by the way, not only are you all different in terms of your background and what brought you here, the Spirit of God has also breathed different gifts into all of you and that's awesome. Don't all try, have the same gift. Serve with the ones that God has placed in you. Here again though, let me make a confession as a church leader. Think of the ways that we have flattened out the use of the gifts because we have made it as if the only place the gifts can be used is in the Sunday gathering. And in so doing, we have essentially reduced people's gifts to the spiritual gifts of parking, ushering, and kids ministry, and we've got the rest covered by pros. I know a lot of people in our church feel that way. Now, now listen, I'm gonna unpack a little bit of what I said there because our kids directors um, have just fainted on the floor and our executive pastors are texting me as we speak. They're like, bro, you just destroyed all of our volunteers. Hear me clearly. Those roles of service in the body are essential and meaningful, especially in kids' ministry as you shape the discipleship of young lives. But it's all the more reason that we should have people using their spiritual gifts within these roles of service and they should know what those gifts are because they've been practicing them in community long before they get to a Sunday. Friends, I've been spending 15 years <laughs> of ministry, trying to recruit, train, and, uh, and motivate church volunteers for Sunday services. You know what I think now? And I'll say this carefully, but I believe this. We don't actually need volunteers for the church. We need a priesthood of all believers operating with the gifts that the Holy Spirit has chosen to give to them who serve on Sundays and throughout the week as an overflow of their ongoing life of service in community. Friends, I know we frustrated some of you in, in, in this very area. Don't waste time waiting for someone to recognize gifts that can be used on a Sunday stage. Those are important. But Paul's view of God's liberal and giving uh, of gifts and, and, and the community's free using of those abundant gifts is that there are something that emerges as people serve one another. Paul never gives us a spiritual gifts assessment or test to figure out your gift. What does he say? Serve, then you'll figure out your gift. Where's the best place to serve? In community with people that you're paying attention to God with. When you serve people in community, your gifts bubble out and become a cause for great celebration in the body. Um, I didn't know I had the gift of teaching until I launched a small group at a church. And Sue and I launched a group. Um, uh, we were engaged, we weren't married yet. We launched a group in my one bedroom apartment in a neighborhood called Craig Hall Park, just outside um, of Johannesburg in South Africa. 
and seven friends gathered that first Wednesday night and I opened the Bible and I taught through chapter one of Philippians. And as they were leaving, they said, hey, um, could we bring some friends? I was like, I mean, sure. I mean, this is before social distancing. I don't know where they'll sit, but <laughs> bring them. And the next week we had about 10 and, and, and then we had about 15 and then, I don't know, obviously it wasn't good one week so we had about nine. And, um, but over time what happened is I started to go, man, as I serve this community in the way that I know how, I see a gift bubble out from me. Uh, Sue started to recognize she had a real gift of hospitality and of service and of exhortation and encouragement. She wouldn't have known unless we had served the people that God put in front of us. All right, I've got to keep moving. All right, I'm running out of time. Verse nine says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let me just stop there for a second. This is a powerful section of what the Christian life together looks like. It is 13 exhortations that Paul's gonna give in five short verses, and we could gloss over them or actually let them take root today. I want us to let them sink in today, to just take Paul at his word. And the first one is essential. It always gets me. Let love be without hypocrisy. It literally means that true love doesn't wear a mask. Now wait, <laughs> wait. You don't actually have a verse now to justify your maskless Costco run. Um, if you want a verse to help you think through that particular issue, there are many that I could recommend. You might wanna start with Philippians 2 verse three, which says, consider others as more important than yourselves. Start with that one, um, but there are many others. This verse is not a good lens for that decision. There is wisdom in the scriptures for that decision. The context here is a theater and a stage where before CGI, characters would have to wear masks to adopt the persona and pretense of somebody else. And in order to do that, they had to hide their true identity, right? Paul says, you can't hide your true identity and pretend to be someone else and expect to give and receive genuine love in the context of a Christian community. It is impossible. Bonhoeffer pressed in on this in his little book, uh, Life Together, which I've already recommended to you. Uh, he exposed why so many Christians go to lots of church services and still feel desperately lonely. He said this, listen to this, it's phenomenal. This quote has been ringing in my head all week. He said, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. And so everybody must conceal their sin from themselves and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. I told you, life together, it's a fun read. You, uh, you really should check it out. Friends, I realized recently in like a journey of self-discovery in my 40s that I've spent most of my life terrified at the thought of what other people think of me. And so you end up creating a caricature of yourself that you don't even like just so that other people will like it and it's a no-win game because when they like it, you know it's not you and when they don't like it, you still feel rejected because it's your portrayal. It is striking and sobering to me 
that there are many who are outraged at the thought of wearing a mask in church today, while many of us have already been doing that for years. And I am chief of sinners here. Our communities have to be places where sin can be revealed so that the gospel can drive us forward so that grace can be applied. There have to be safe spaces for sinners, which actually ends up making them terrifying places for sin and the forces behind the kingdom of darkness. Second part of verse nine, really gotta speed this up. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Isn't this interesting that Paul says, don't be a hypocrite, and then he doesn't say, so you just be you, you know, do whatever you want. He says, no, no, detest evil. Cling to what is good. This is how you walk out a life that's not full of hypocrisy. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Be persistent in prayer. Together, share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Here's what Paul's saying. Together, we live lives that actually impact upon others. What a section. Paul is essentially saying your life of faith isn't in a vacuum of individualism, no matter how hard you try, create it as such. It impacts and is impacted by those you walk with, because remember, you are all members of each other. And so he says, don't pretend, because that negatively impacts others by continually creating a false standard that no one can live up to. And he says, pursue holiness, because that impacts the community around you. Your fight against sin isn't just about you, it's about the family. Love with affection as brothers and sisters. We've forgotten how to do this. Love in a way so that others know that you love them. (laughs) Don't just love from the depths of your heart. Love so that others receive love and know that they are loved. Show honor. Outdo one another in it. I don't know when it became like the thing in the church that we're so scared of honor. We can be displaying honor and humble at the same time. In fact, if you are humble, you will display honor. The scripture says if you wanna have a competition in church, let it be a competition for who gives the most honor to somebody else. Imagine that kind of community. That's an instruction straight from the scripture. We just ignore it. When was the last time you showed an image bearer some honor? Be zealous, be fervent, be fervent servants. Others will catch it. Uh, friends, what are, what are other people catching from your faith at the moment? Do they catch more zeal, more fervor, or do they catch more cynicism, more discouragement, more faithlessness, more pessimism, more anger? Suffer well, he says. Pray continually. Why? Other people learn from it. Help others. Have strangers in your home. You're teaching others what community actually is. Okay, well, how will you practice this? You need a group of believers to practice it in and amongst. We're nearly done, I promise. Paul says in verse 14, oh God, imagine we live this way. Look what he says. Bless those who persecute you. (laughs) Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. (laughs) Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace 
with everyone. I don't know where your social media accounts sit, but that verse needs to go above wherever you generate tweets and Insta pictures and, and Facebook uh, uh, posts from, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Here's Paul's point, I'm nearly done. Together, we get to portray rebellious empathy and mercy. Rebellious empathy and mercy. Why would I call this rebellious? Well, I think it is one of the clearest and simplest ways we can push against the grain of our culture and context is to find a group of people where we can live this out. Where in a world of vengeance, we can bless those who persecute us. Where in a world full of desperate covetousness and unbridled aspiration, we can rejoice with those who are winning around us. We're in a world operating from a position of controlling a narrative and political point scoring. We can weep with those who weep. We're in a world where attention is derived from discord. We can show what it looks like to seek to live in harmony with others. We're in a world where success moves you further and further and further away from the lowly. We can show what it means to push back in the opposite direction. Oh, imagine if we got together together again and we got together together as a collective of of communities that have been living this way. We wanna change the narrative on how society views evangelicals and followers of Christ. This is how we do it. By not using the tools of the world, but by using the tools of the word and how it tells us to live together. Verse 21, as we summarize, it says, in summary, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Paul's last observation in this section is, hey, together, we can and we will overcome the darkness in this world. It can feel easy to believe that evil is winning, right? that evil is overcoming the world, but together with other believers, Paul says we can overcome with good. We can push back, not trying to control, but seeking to undermine the evil in the world with the light of the gospel at work in a group of ordinary people pursuing Jesus together, being transformed by the Spirit together. Friends, would we really wanna give the devil even an inch to divide us right now, we, we might not easily be able to gather all together in one place, but we can be powerfully united in one fight, and that fight is against evil with good. Who do you feel like you're fighting right now? I know a lot of you feel that your hackles are up, you feel like you're in a fight. Who are you fighting? Those with opposing views on politics? Those who disagree with you on public health regulations and recommendations, no, no, no. We have other things to fight. Let's fight evil with good together by living this way. So here's my simple call today. We are launching in this season a big call to active participation in group life. We're launching it today. We pray that it will change our church. Here's the good news. We're not even defining groups too narrowly. We are saying that groups are just consistent and intentional Christian friendships that seek to love God, love the church, love the city, and love the nations together. (laughs) 
A group of friends pursuing that mission together is a group in the church. And so there's some practical action steps to take if you aren't in one of those or if you would like to be involved in the forming of one of those. We are hosting group leader training nights over the next two weeks at every congregation. We'll record those, but, but we're also making available in-room opportunities with social distancing um, protocols in place. If you lead a group or want to lead a group and haven't heard details already, please reach out to your congregation leadership to get connected to those trainings. Go along. We want to put the tools in your hand to help a group of people live this way. If you are a partner in the church or a committed congregant of the stone and you're not in a group, we wanna help. I don't wanna shame you today. Sue and I haven't been in a group up until now. We're starting one in our home. I've had all the same excuses that that you guys have had since since we got to Austin. This is not a trick. We're not gonna shame you. We're not gonna expose you. I get it. We wanna help. We wanna help. Simply, at the end of this, stay to the end, listen to the announcements, then go to austinstone.org slash connect and just click the most obvious form there that helps you to get connected. It'll say something like, I wanna get connected or I wanna get in a group. Someone will follow up with you. I can't promise you a group that's just full of awesome people exactly like you. What I can promise you is a conversation and an opportunity to be transformed by the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit together in a group with some other saints. Friends, God is at work. He's at work. He's busy transforming the church. I love it. I love it. And isn't it in his wisdom that we would use the season when we cannot do the very thing that we are most prone to do? Because perhaps he's showing us that there's some weaknesses in our models that he longs to fix so that we can walk more faithfully with him, that we can represent him more honorably in our day and age so that we can be transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and so that we will not be conquered by evil, but together we will conquer evil with good. Father God, thank you so much for your word. This text so helpful and profound. I just pray that you would give us the power to believe it. Lord, I pray for those in the church who are lonely. They've been in many services, never experienced community. I pray that maybe today would be a turning point. Father, I pray for those of us who have made many excuses about why we cannot do this. I pray that today you would create in us a hunger to wanna be transformed together with other people. Oh Lord, we don't want the evil one to win. We wanna push back through the good news of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to be a peculiar and transformed people and help us to do that together. Lord, give us great wisdom. Give us great boldness to know how and when we can meet together, all of us together in, in big rooms again. In the meanwhile, forge us into the kind of communities that your scripture clearly calls us to be while we wait. We love you, Lord. Help us to obey you. In Jesus' name.